Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. My name is John Trapagan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also a professor of anthropology in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I welcome Dr. James Schwartz to talk about his new book, The Value of Science in Space Exploration, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Professor Schwartz, thank you for joining me on the STS channel. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you about this interesting contribution to research on the social and ethical dimensions of space exploration. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Okay, so I'm going to begin with a little bit of background about Dr. Schwartz. Uh, He's an assistant professor of philosophy at Wichita State University where he actively pursues an interdisciplinary research program focused on the philosophy and ethics of space exploration. Dr. Schwartz also has research interests in environmental ethics, philosophy of mathematics, and metaphysics. His work has appeared in, in quite a wide variety of scholarly journals, including Space Policy, Advances in Space Research, Acta Astronautica, Astropolitics, Environmental Ethics, Ethics in the Environment, and Philosophia Mathematica. Uh, it's quite a, an interesting group of, of um, places to publish. Uh, the book we're going to discuss today is an important and timely study as humans seem poised on the edge of a second space age. Dr. Schwartz's work addresses a set of questions that have been around for a long time. Should we be focusing our attention on human expansion into space? Is it worth the risk and the financial cost? Is there really any value in extending humanity into off-Earth environments? Dr. Schwartz answers with a very carefully developed yes that relies on the idea that there's intrinsic value in doing science and thus in space exploration, as well as intrinsic value in humanity. Now, I'll, I'll say right off the bat, as an anthropologist, both of these ideas are, those, are, are ideas that I find open to some debate. Uh, so I'm looking forward to a, a kind of interesting conversation here where we get into some of the um, arguments surrounding these ideas. But before we enter into that, I would like to ask a very general question, uh, which I usually use to start these interviews. I'm curious how you got interested in the study of space exploration as a philosopher and what led you to write this book? Yeah, good. And, you know, I I think space exploration is is something that's been with me longer than philosophy, although I did get a much earlier start in philosophy than most. I was taking kinds of philosophy classes all the way back in in middle school. Uh, So, you know, I've always had that kind of avenue to, you know, examining other things that I'm interested in. But, you know, for as long as I can remember, I've cared about space. Maybe it was just fascination with spaceflight imagery, you know, images of other planets and things like this that just seemed enthralling to me. Um, But it was really sometime in grad school where um, I kind of remembered uh, my passion for space for for no apparent reason, really. It was just something that popped into my head one day that said, well, why haven't I ever seen any philosophy about space exploration? 
Um, I hadn't looked at the time, but if I had, I wouldn't have found much. Um, and so I ended up, you know, putting together a paper about ethics and space exploration, thinking about, you know, obligations and it ends up getting published and the sort of rest is history, um, in terms of, you know, folks finding that paper, starting to put on events because uh, I just happened to, to make that contribution at a time when a lot of other people were, were starting to, to think about these things as well. Um, cause it was around 2009, 10, 11, where SpaceX is really kind of, um, gaining, uh, national and international attention, that it's not just talk anymore. You know, they're actually getting these rockets launched. Uh, and so the, the the dawn of the commercial space age was was no longer avoidable, I think, for, for many scholars. Um, and so it was just thinking, there must be something here worth talking about. And um, the more you look into it, the more there is to do. Yeah, I think that's, that's interesting that, you know, so much was being thought about in the 1960s and it, it all kind of petered out, you know, because um, basically we found ourselves just kind of going up to low earth orbit and kind of in the space shuttle, not really going anywhere until the space station came into being, but it's a very different time. And, um, you know, I think that that leads to this kind of philosophical uh, fascination with what we're doing as we move into space. And, Early in the book, you, you set out a very ambitious um, aim as exploring what you say is the wh- whether and in what senses we are justified in saying there's a moral obligation to uh, support it, space exploration. And that is a very interesting idea because I, I think most people don't think about space exploration in terms of uh, the ethics of it at all, let alone whether we might have a moral obligation to support it. So I'm curious why you felt there was a need to frame a question about the justification of space exploration in terms of this notion of moral obligation. Why not simply think about it in terms of, you know, economic gain or the assumed inherent value of exploring space for the human spirit, kind of like the way that Zubrin does? Yeah. So there's a a few things to say there. And and maybe the first is that I would not have considered it my own innovation to, to treat questions about, you know, spaceflight objectives as ethical questions, I'd want to say they were probably ethical questions all along. Um, and they've certainly been, you know, uh, discussed uh, in ethical settings prior to, to my time on the scene. Um, you know, environmental ethics in particular is a, an area where, um, you know, ethicists and philosophers have made contributions to questions about terraforming, for instance, because um, there was interest in that in the late 80s. And there was a, a book that came out uh, an anthology that included, you know, contributions from environmental ethicists as well as space scientists and lawyers and, and things of that nature. And that really kind of set the mold for how uh, we've been engaging on an interdisciplinary basis, uh, even to this day. And that book, uh, just for reference, is uh, Beyond Spaceship Earth, uh, edited by Gene Hargrove, also the founder of the journal Environmental Ethics. It's a, it's a great book. It's still widely cited today. But, but at any rate, so um, it, it struck me that these were ethical questions in the first place. I never even considered whether they were. But when, when you pose this, you know, ethics versus economics kind of question, I mean, that still strikes me as an ethical question. But ethics, you know, to a philosopher just means questions about what we ought to do. You know, what's the right or best thing for us to do? Uh, and so 
you know, it, it would be an ethical decision whether to pursue spaceflight activities for economic purposes or for other purposes. And so, you know, even asking the question, should we go to space to grow the economy? I'm going to say that's an ethical question in a certain kind of sense, even if it's some other kind of question at the same time, because it would be a decision that we would make to say that, yes, you know, um, growing the economy is a morally good thing to do. Uh, and so we are going to continue to support initiatives that grow the economy in ways X, Y, Z. Um, I, I don't think we escape ethics ever, really, um, because we're never uh, freeing ourselves from, you know, the need to ask, are we doing the, the best things for the best reasons? Are we properly taking the people affected by those decisions into consideration? Uh, and the particulars are always going to vary from case to case and culture to culture. But, you know, the need to think about stuff, I think, um, you know, remains. So I would say that Zabrin has been attempting ethics this whole time. I would just say that he's um, not been as careful as as we should be when we think about these issues and, and not as carefully checking assumptions as I think we should strive to be. Yeah, I would entirely agree with you. I, I think that that's actually one of the, the problems um, as people uh, do things like writing about, you know, justifications for space exploration or really justifications for much of anything is that they often don't go into that kind of careful deliberation about the shoulds and the oughts and how we construct those. And as a result, um, where they go with those types of arguments often, you know, can range anywhere from, you know, simplistic to very problematic. And so I think that's actually one of the real values of the work that you're doing is that it moves us into that direction. Um, I think, or actually takes us very clearly into that direction. Um, in, in chapter three, when you're talking about the instrumental value of scientific knowledge and understanding the rationale for space science, which I think brings us to this kind of issue of you know, what we do, why we go into space, the shoulds, uh, you make what I think is actually a really interesting point mm -hmm. um, that is, I think, salient in our, our current political uh, climate in the U.S. And I'm going to quote this. You state, a liberal democratic society is obliged to engage in those activities which are likely to contribute to democratic deliberation, ensuring scientific freedom of means and moreover ends for at least some research projects is likely to contribute to democratic deliberation. Therefore, a liberal democratic society is obliged to ensure scientific freedom of means and moreover ends for at least some research projects. It seems to me that the point you're making here is that, that science and the protection of free scientific inquiry is fundamental to the success, uh, to the successful operation of a liberal democratic society. And of course, you know, what we've seen in the previous administration was, uh, I think, what we could describe as an over attack on that kind of um, freedom of scientific inquiry. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this um, idea and and in general, and also as it relates specifically to uh, scientific and scientific education. Good. And, and um, I, I guess it's important to start with, with a you know, container or a boundary on the argument that, that I'm making in, in the, the part of the book that, that you're describing. And, and maybe it's a container that the entire book sits in. I, I haven't thought enough about that. But uh, so I want to start by saying I'm not writing the book for for every possible audience. I think I'm writing for a largely Western audience um, that is passionate about space, but hasn't yet thought deeply about it, um, has just maybe read some of the standard space advocacy books. Um, and so in terms of um, 
how I'm pitching certain kinds of reasons for thinking science is valuable. Uh, I'm, I'm not always, there are places in the book where I probably am, but, but, but I want to say I'm not always trying to make universal claims. And so uh, when I say that, you know, scientific inquiry and free scientific inquiry is important for sort of, you know, liberal democratic governance, um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying any more than I'm saying. Um, and well, I would argue that that scientific inquiry is valuable regardless of your your governance system. Uh, but um, one way of seeing that chapter in the book is trying to say, look, if if you're a liberal democratic society, you have good reasons to to support space exploration. But I'm not arguing in that chapter that we should have liberal democratic societies, even if I might think that as my preferred uh, you know system of governance. Um, so I think you know that kind of clarification, especially when we're talking across disciplines. Um, is important to make because language like liberal, democratic, you know, these words can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I would uh, maybe ask the listener to, to not imagine I'm using those words in very deep ways. When I talk about liberal democracy, I'm just talking about sort of, you know, self-governance as an ideal and autonomy as an important way to ensure self-governance. And I'm not committing myself to any kind of structures beyond that, um, except insofar as if we're going to be pragmatic about it, we've got to address the structures that we're actually working with. Um, so, well, now, you know, with that preface, I've kind of lost the question. So I, I guess maybe I'd ask <laughs> you to remind me of why I, I wanted to make that hedge to then answer your question. Um, well, that, that was a good hedge. And, and you should always make hedges when an anthropologist is involved, because I'm probably going to give you grief at some point. But um, I, I think the the, the question oh, that I was I, planning I, on, you know, I was I was I was. <laughs> You're, you're prepared for my attack. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't. I don't start games. I don't know the rules for you know. <laughs> well, it's not a game. This is fun, right? I mean, it's. Right. Uh, it is. Um, I, I don't know how much. You know, I, I imagine this is the part that's getting cut out. So you know. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Uh, it might. It um, might end up there. But let me. Let me. The the thing that um, I, I think part of what was intriguing to me about this, and I think very important, is that when you're making this argument that this is scientific freedom is important to a democratic, you know, a liberal democratic society. It seems to have a kind of a flip side to this in that the failure to do that is going to be problematic. And, um, you know, we have, I think over the past four years lived in an environment where there was a, I think a fairly overt attack on scientific inquiry. Um, and you know, the, the aims of scientific inquiry and, We've seen a lot of that in, in American society for a long time. That's not really new. And so I was curious if, if how your ideas, um, how do they kind of tie in to scientific education? Because one of the things I felt as I read the book is that, and, and I may be reading into it, but I, I felt that there was a kind of underlying argument that we need to, you know, part of what space exploration does and other kinds of scientific inquiry do uh, is important, and we need to bolster scientific education, and we haven't done that perhaps very well. And so, I'm I'm curious what you would think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, I would be generally supportive of this, and um, I, I don't have incredibly sophisticated views about what that education should look like. I do think process is incredibly important here. That is, it, scientific thinking is, is far more about what we believe, in, uh, uh, sorry, far less about what we believe and far more about how it is we form and evaluate beliefs. And um, 
it's a process that I consider, you know, the the most reliable one because it sort of sets out uh, ways of determining its reliability, uh, and not all sort of you know belief forming systems do that. And you know, we can quibble about you know is that um, the kind of approach you want to take to 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 structuring your your understanding of the world. And, and I would say the book is written for people who think the scientific worldview is is the the one to adopt in the sense of it's about evidence and process, not believe what scientists say. Um, you know, that that scientism and that is a, a view I reject. Um, but I, I am a sort of naturalist in philosophy to the extent that I think that um, uh, the sort of way we have of looking at the world uh, from the scientific perspective is the, the best way to learn about the world. Uh, and learning about the world is necessary for um, accomplishing the goals that we have, because knowledge always uh, enables uh, awareness of possibility and uh, provides, um, you know, fodder for finding solutions to problems. And so, you know, the, the better equipped we can we can make people to to be able to view the world and interpret it uh, in productive ways, um, the better. Uh, and so, you know, to the extent we have this you know, cultural moment where uh, a big chunk of the country is not so hot on learning. I, I do find that concerning uh, because when you turn away from learning, you also turn away from the possibility of new ideas. And um, I think we need a lot of new ideas to solve the problems that we have. Um, and if half the, the folks that we're trying to interact with don't care about new ideas or even, you know, creating the conditions that would put them in places where they encounter new ideas, you know, that's going to be a problem. Uh, and we kind of see this in, in space, I would say, uh, in a certain kind of way. Um, I think there are thought leaders in space exploration, sort of, you know, um, people who just have the the sort of ability to, to influence the sort of zeitgeist surrounding space, as it were. Um, and, you know, it, it's folks like Elon Musk. Uh, and... Um, a lot of people believe the things they do, it seems anyway. I, I can't claim to simulate other minds here, right? Um, but it seems like w w when Musk tweets something out about uh, some objection to space settlement being stupid, um, you know, a lot of people form that belief on that basis. And uh, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre uh, would call that a case of thoughtlessness, uh, of not having any control over your beliefs, n not having control over the, the sources of evidence, not having control over um, how it is you evaluate that evidence, um, not uh, being aware of the context in which you're forming the belief and what kind of interest the people trying to get you to believe that might or might not have. So I think a lot of people sort of it's tough for them to discriminate between different, you know, subcategories of space exploration, different spaceflight activities. Um, people tend to think you're either just pro-space or anti-space, but there's a lot of ways of being pro-space and a lot of different things you might support or reject still as a pro-space person. So, um, you know, in, in, to, to some extent, right, I'm trying to address that, that culture and I'm trying to get people to think uh, with, with a, a, finer, a greater degree of granularity. Um, about spaceflight. You know, it's not just this one thing. It's not a monolith at all. It's tons and tons of different things. And we have to have much more individualized conversations, which means when we talk about the value of space exploration, um, it's the value of various different kinds of spaceflight activities. And they're not always going to be, 
equally worthy of supporting at any given time. And unless we think to ask these questions, right, unless we have the skills uh, that prepare you to, to look at, you know, a messy situation like space exploration and try to put some coherent order to it, uh, you know, you're not going to be interested in, in subtler conversations. It's just going to be, well, you know, Elon Musk wants to do it. So that's, yeah, mm-hmm. sounds good to me, right? Well, and that's where we tend to make often very grand mistakes when we don't get into those subtler conversations and thoughts. Yeah, I mean, we test our technologies, but so it doesn't I, seem like yeah. we test our ideas. And, you know, if, if your mantra yeah. uh, as a, a rocket scientist is this is why we test, um, that has applications um, in lots of places. Yeah, I think we, we agree on quite a lot with this. And I, I want to turn to some things that we may not agree on and, and kind of explore those a little bit. And for me, uh, kind of most central in this is is uh, this idea of the notion of the intrinsic value of space exploration as a scientific endeavor. Um, could you explain for our listeners why you see this value as intrinsic? That word to me is interesting, um, as opposed to simply a product of you know, cultural tropes like the frontier ideology of the U- that the U.S. has used, um, and it certainly shaped our ideas about explore, uh, space exploration. But I'm I'm curious why you use the idea of, of it being intrinsic and and why this is important and what you mean by that. Good. So, um, I, I would first say that I'm not only uh, trying to establish the the intrinsic value of scientific knowledge and understanding. Uh, um, the the topic we were talking about a moment ago about sort of science being important for, you know, democratic societies and other kinds of societies as a, a way of, you know, building knowledge, um, that would be marking scientific knowledge as instrumentally valuable. And so um, I don't think the entire book is going to, you know, stand or, or fall on the success of these intrinsic value arguments. And if they're not going to work in the end, um, you know, I, I have a, a backup plan for that, I should say. But but I do believe that uh, scientific knowledge and understanding do convey something that has intrinsic value, that it's something kind of worth acquiring for its own sake in a way. Um and of course, that's a, a pretty widely promulgated claim among, you know, science advocates, right? It's something that seems to be a very ordinary part of the discourse um, for a very long time. Um, and, uh, you know, it, there is that interpretation that, well, if it's these people that want to do the studying that keep saying that studying is valuable, well, you know, you don't have to look far for the explanation for that, right? Um but I, I think that understates the case that could be made ultimately, because it's not just random folks, um, you know, expressing a preference. And, and it's not as though um, education has only arisen in a single culture. Um, I think there is something true about the idea that we are curious and we desire to learn. It's just that the object of our curiosity is incredibly variable. Uh, we don't. All, we're not all interested in doing or learning the same things, but but it seems like you know we all seem to have some kind of curiosity and some kind of you know interest in in learning or experiencing, um, even if our ambitions there are very modest. Uh, and so you know, are are there going to be kind of you know biological traits that are more universally characteristic of humanity that might play a role in, you know, why we're inclined to want to learn things. Uh, maybe, 
you know, I'm not the, the expert that would determine that, right? Uh, I'm not an anthropologist or a geneticist or a biologist. Uh, but, well, let's see, what was the, the thing I wanted to, 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 to link to that? Let me, so, sorry, just give me a second. Um, but, you know, I, ultimately, I, I think those questions end up a little beside the point because um, whether we have drives or impulses and, and whether uh, we exist in cultures that, that express preferences or not um, doesn't necessarily make those things justified, right? Just because I have a natural inclination doesn't mean that it should be something that I should just go out and do. Um, I need to consider others, for instance. Um, of course, is that a cultural culturally uh, re restricted kind of belief, right? I mean, how, how, how much are you willing to get unmoored? And um, there's ultimately not a view from nowhere, right? I mean, we have to start from some kind of assumptions. Um, and the, the, the concern that I would very much uh, agree with that I think a lot of defenders of, you know, Western science might not uh, be as comfortable uh, granting is the idea that science is, is a tool ultimately, and it's a tool that can be used for good or bad. And um, to, to defend the, the intrinsic value of science is a much more ideal kind of argument. It's an in-principle argument. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to explore basically uh, people have said that science is intrinsically valuable for, for a really long time, but they haven't really done any argumentation in support of it. They've just said it. What kind of argument could you make? Uh, and that's what I really get into, I think, in, in chapter two of the book is if you're going to take seriously the idea that scientific knowledge and understanding is intrinsically valuable, here is a path you could use to support that conclusion. Um, and it's a really long path because I, I end up going through some discussions uh, from epistemology and, and this debate known as the epistemic value debate, where the central question here uh, is, you know, is knowledge intrinsically valuable? Is it worth seeking or acquiring for its own sake? Now, they don't always use the term intrinsic value. Sometimes it's inherent value or final value. And sometimes these terms mean different things for different authors. When I talk about intrinsic value, I... I Again, it's, it's a very light notion in terms of um, not saying more than I'm saying about stuff. But um, I, I just sort of mean something that kind of adds value to the world simply for existing. Um, that would be worth, uh, it, when you're talking about knowledge, then scientific knowledge would then be something worth acquiring for its own sake. And, well, how do you make that argument, right? I mean, w what's the path that, that you would take? And I've always been tempted by the sort of naturalist school of thought in philosophy, which says that you can't always hope for empirical confirmation, even in science. Um, there are a lot of scientific claims that, that are simply uh, accepted because they're the best explanation um, even if uh, what we've been able to test with experiments uh, doesn't, you know, um, let us examine every single hypothesis uh, or every single assumption that's made in the experiment. And so, uh, you know, I think my starting point is one where um, the most certainty we can get about any claim in the scientific worldview is going to be somewhat distant from absolute certainty. Um, I think we can have very high probability about most of our beliefs, but I don't think we can ever be certain about most anything other than, you know, Descartes, Cogito. I think, therefore, I am. I, I, I can't be in doubt about my own existence, even if I could be wrong about the nature of that existence. Um, and so 
I want to ask then, do ethical claims need to be held to a different standard than that? I mean, can there be some kind of holistic or inference to the best style explanation? Uh, sorry, inference to the best explanation style reasoning employed in ethics. And I don't see why there can't be. And so here it's just a question of um, if you're trying to explain some data, um, and in ethics, oftentimes the data would be our sort of intuitions about appropriate responses in a situation. Um, you know, that's the data that we're trying to account for. And how universal your ethical theory is going to be is going to just depend on how how much data you've gathered and how good a job you've done assembling a, you know, a, a relevant sample of that data. Um, but if my arguments are ultimately bounded by something like the scientific worldview, if I just don't have the ability to, to, to show that knowledge is intrinsically valuable on any possible worldview, but only certain ones, um, I'll accept that. Uh, because again, I think my arguments about the intrinsic value of science are directed at people who already think that's the case, but just haven't ever explored why, or at least people who are open to the idea of things being intrinsically valuable. So I'm not trying to defend the very existence of intrinsically valuable things. I'm trying to say that if you're on board with intrinsic value um, and you're comfortable talking about humans being intrinsically valuable, I don't see why you should be uncomfortable talking about scientific knowledge and understanding being intrinsically valuable. Um, and uh, I know that you're interested in pressing me on the intrinsic value of humans in the first place. I don't know if you want to mm -hmm. turn that now or if we want to keep going uh, on something else. Well, we could, yeah, we could talk about that because, you know, I, I think, um, well, I think as an anthropologist, you know, for me, the concept of, of intrinsic value is somewhat problematic simply because I tend to think that all value is culturally constructed. Now, we probably could get into a bit of a discussion about whether or not you could still see that as intrinsic, even though it's generated out of our, our cultural cultural frames. But, um, you know, I, I would ask, you know, on what basis would you argue, you know, for example, that, um, you know, I think we think in terms of individual humans and value, and I think most of us comfortably think of, of us as having intrinsic value, but often there's an argument made particularly in, in the space community and when, you know, talking about things like encounter with extraterrestrials or whatever, that humanity is somehow intrinsically um, valuable, or that it has some intrinsic worth. Um, and I, I, I've never been entirely convinced about that myself. And I'm wondering how you, what you think about that. Is it at the individual level or is it something about humanity as a whole that you think of as having intrinsic worth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's that's a good question, and I mean, I'm I'm wondering if I want to start all the way back with an analogy, um, and, and it's 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 one I discuss in chapter two in the book uh, as kind of a demonstration of of this kind of naturalistic approach to justifying uh, claims that things are intrinsically valuable. And, and it actually, so it comes in philosophy of mathematics, uh, which is what I wrote my dissertation on way back when. Um, and it's this idea when you look at sort of theory development in mathematics, they don't have contact with an underlying reality because, I mean, where are you going to find numbers and functions? Um, you're not going to bump into them, right? Um, and yet, uh, mathematics is this incredibly successful discipline that has all kinds of interesting applications. It seems to predate physics in terms of, you know, the usefulness of new structures and concepts. Um, and it seems very much uh, to be guided not by anything more than 
logical consistency and what seems really interesting to, to mathematicians. Um, and what I would want to say there is, I would want to ask you, well, why is it mathematicians are, are, are engaged in, in that activity? Because most peer mathematicians don't care about applications. Um, and, and so what explains, you know, the fact that we have mathematics, the fact that people are inclined uh, to, to study mathematics and so on and so forth. And my, my hypothesis uh, here, uh, and, and it's offered as something that could account for this and, and explain this, uh, is that perhaps these mathematicians, you know, ha have a belief that this is something worth doing for its own sake. Um, and I think that would dutifully describe all kinds of scientific uh, activities and really all kinds of things that, that people do spontaneously, uh, whether scientific or otherwise. And um, a, a philosophical idea that could join all of this together is the notion of achievement. And perhaps there's something valuable about achievements on their own. And you've got to be very um, thin with what you mean by achievement, you know, accomplishing something, but we're not making claims about the degree to which, you know, there was a challenge involved or anything like that. But it seems like we value accomplishments and, and we do so in ways that go beyond um, merely appreciating the utility or the usefulness uh, uh, of those accomplishments. Um, and I don't think that that's something that's terribly culturally bounded, but I'm also not a cultural anthropologist, even if my inner child really wants to be one. Um, so, I, I mean, that's almost a question to you. I mean, is and there's a separate question here about, you know, does it matter whether these are universal traits or not, right? Um, I, I don't think, um, it, even if we learn that something was universal, that would be end of the matter, or even if we learn something was specific to a single culture, that it would be the end of the discussion. Uh, but, I mean... You know, this is me kind of speculating about what what uh, features I would expect to see in other cultures. But you know, you're the you're much more the expert there. So I'd be curious what your you know response is in in that sense. Well, I think that the the difficulty actually for me comes with um, uh, there's a point that you make in the book where you start talking about eth ethical theorizing, and, and I think a lot of you know kinds of theorizing have this, but you talk about them as being inextricably intuition laden. And, you know, you talk about intuitions about the value of human life and that we should not dismiss these as being, you know, mere opinion. Um, and the difficulty I had with the, have with this as an anthropologist is that I'm not convinced intuition is really universal. Um, and in fact, I think it's quite cultural. I think you see very different intuitions about how we construct the value, say, of human life. We probably, probably all humans in some way, um, you know, value some form of human life. But, you know, certainly the Nazis didn't value human life in the way that we do. They had very different ideas about, you know, what to do in terms of thinking about value. They valued their own lives. Um, and so the, the difficulty that I think I run across is with, with a, an intuition-based way of thinking about this is it has the potential to be inherently ethnocentric because it's working with our intuitions uh, and you could have very different intuitions. It might may still make sense. The Nazis, you know, they, their intuitions don't make sense, but other people's intuitions make sense. And, you know, they're, they're, how do you, how do you grapple with that from a philosophical and an ethical perspective where you've got sort of different intuitional starting points that may lead you to some, you know, like space exploration, some very different ideas about, 
does it make sense for humans to expand and or does it make sense to protect the environment of Mars against strip mining um, so that you know scientists can study and find out if there's life there? Yeah, so when I talk about intuitions, I, I don't necessarily mean my intuitions, but simply the the fact that um, uh, you know there are and it's controversial exactly how you define intuitions in philosophy and ethics in particular. You know, it's these you know intellectual mm-hmm. seemings is one take on that. Um, and, you know, I could certainly see how, um, you know, not everyone in every culture is going to, uh, engage in a practice that they would really characterize as an intellectual seeming if that was a a concept open to their conceptual vocabulary. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I don't mean to refer to intuitions in an in a super specific way, just, just generally that, you know, it's, it's part of, it's the things that occur to us when we're engaged in whatever counts for moral deliberation or moral thinking about situations uh, in, you know, whatever culture or context you're in. Um, and so I would want to say, I think ultimately I'm, uh, I want to be cosmopolitan here uh, and say that it's not just my intuitions that need to be accounted for. It's kind of as many folks' intuitions as possible, mm-hmm. and there are going to be conflicts of intuitions. So what the, what, what do you do there, right? Well, mm-hmm. uh, you have to include in addition sort of behaviors and reasons. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's not the case that every culture has, you know, developed moral philosophies and intuitions about the value of human life, but I would think many cultures... Uh, behave in ways that protect human life, uh, that protect the vulnerable, uh, that that heal the the sick when that's not going to you know cause harm to the entire group or society or maybe even if it would, um, regardless, right? So um, if you're willing to count more than just beliefs as examples of demonstrations of the value of human life. I think I can build a stronger argument, but again, I'd want to ask you, you know, I mean, how many counterexamples are out there and is this a pattern that um, shows up a lot or is it more exceptional that there are cultures that, you know, behave in ways as though the life would be worth protecting for its own sake? Because what I'm going to say is that the intrinsic value of human life is an explanation for those behaviors, whether it's, you know, believed mm-hmm. in the moment or not. It's, if it were true, it would provide a good explanation for what's happening it is kind of my argument, I guess. Yeah, I think that argument also brings up something that is in, you know, great need is exactly these kinds of contexts where we have philosophers and anthropologists or, you know, econo- economists or whomever involved in having these conversations, because I really like the way that you phrase this, that we have different intuitions and, and in a sense, you know, maybe part of what philosophy can do, if, if I'm going to rephrase what you said a little bit, is it can be one of the ways that we negotiate those intuitions and we figure out how to, you know, grapple with the fact that we don't all have the start, same starting point. And, well, we and that's the case within with societies that. as well, right? Um, yes. I mean, we, yeah. we sometimes talk about Western society as this monolithic thing, but I mean, even within, you know, Western uh, analytic ethical philosophy, uh, you, you see significant disagreements even at foundational levels. Now, maybe there's a, a shared assumption about um, critical reasoning and, and, and logical principles that, that, that folks seldom question. 
Uh, and there are debates in, in philosophy of logic about all that stuff as well. And, uh, you know, there are going to be common assumptions there too. Um, and I think, I mean, to, to me, this is why I'm really interested in, in you know, seeking out, uh, you know, more diverse sources of input and evidence because, well, it's in part, you know, I've read papers from folks like you and Catherine Denning and, and Linda mm-hmm. Billings, um, and, and you've all had a pretty big impact on my thinking in terms of uh, it's not enough to be culturally specific when you're talking about things like space settlement, because that's going to be a decision that impacts everyone. And so everyone should have a say. Um, and, right. and, you know, I, I think this is a, a, a point where maybe I could have been clear. I, I thought I did try to give the reader hints about who I'm responding to and, and what audience I'm really writing for in terms of um, how on board are you with the way that people already do ethics, for instance, right? Uh, mm-hmm. how, on, how on board are you with the scientific worldview in the first place? Uh, and I'm not so much trying to defend the worldview, but trying to work within a worldview uh, that I think a lot of people have. Um, but, you know, what would I say in a, in a fully objective, or at least in an attempt to be fully objective about, you know, what's what's valuable about knowledge or, or human life? Again, I, I worry that there's not a view from nowhere. Uh, this is, a, a, I guess, a, a right. thought that comes from Thomas Nagel. Um, mm-hmm. There's a book, The View from Nowhere, um, if I'm remembering the author of that book correctly. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, so, you know, we're never going to be unconstrained by assumptions. And um, we've got to figure out, you know, are there truly universal assumptions across all of humanity or not? And when we bring in aliens, we've got to even have a a deeper and and more annoying conversation about that. (laughs) Uh, But at some point, um, we do have to say we are existing in systems. And um, even if those systems are not the ideal ones, we still need to talk about how to do things better with what we've already got. So another way of seeing my arguments, um, and probably what I was really trying to do with them, and could have been a little clearer about, you know, what objection, what objections am I going to respond to in the book versus what am I leaving uh, uh, to, to to further discussion, would be, hey, you know, this is really for people who are super into space, um, and, and that's. Uh, you know, uh, are, you know, of a mindset that let's do it right away. Uh, and Musk has got the right idea about space settlement. Uh, and so this is kind of, hey, the values you are already committed to probably support a different conclusion. Um, <laughs> that, I think, is the main thesis that I would say I was focused on uh, in the book. Uh, but, you know, I, yeah, I, I, th- I want to try to have responses to, to these, you know, wider concerns, because I think ultimately um, I don't want to preach to, to any choirs. Uh, that That's not something I'm terribly right. interested in doing. And um, but, yeah. we're, at, we're at a very um, sort of critical inflection point, I think, between our respective disciplines on this question of, say, mm-hmm. cultural relativism versus moral realism uh, and... Um, you know, it's it's, and I can understand that the sort of relativist position is very much um, a method of anthropology. I mean, when you're trying to study other cultures and and construct ethnographies uh, and things of this nature, I mean, your job is not there to stand in judgment over assumptions or or reasoning. Your job is just to understand uh, those cultures and um, people like me. You know, people on my side of the divide. Um, 
need to realize that we are doing different things. You are trying to catalog beliefs and practices and not analyze them, uh, whereas philosophers are more interested in analyzing and critiquing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think folks like us just sort of need to keep in mind that we are, you know, coming from very different orientations about how you study a topic uh, and that um, just because I've adopted this model for my research doesn't mean that's the model that determines, you know, what the reality is or, or what the approach that everyone should take is. And, um, yeah, it's just something that's helpful for everyone to keep in mind in these discussions, right? Um, you never know what assumptions are going to be safe until you start talking to people. Well, that's it. And, and also you you don't know what assumptions will turn out to be interesting as well. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it's, you know, in anthropology, the idea of cultural relativism, I I like the way you put that it's, it's a method and and that is what it is. It doesn't mean that anthropologists are necessarily all cultural relativists. Well, I mean, I I imagine most of you don't believe that murder is correct or permissible. Uh, And so, you know, there's, there's at least that one little thing that we're all kind of not relativists about, but how much more can you get is, is, the interesting question from like an intro ethics kind of perspective, but sorry. Yeah, you know. and, and no, that's an important point. And even that one, you know, then becomes the question of, well, how do you define murder and how is it different in one context and another, you know, all that stuff. But I think one of the things you do really nicely in the book is, is, you know, that audience that you're aiming at the people who are already kind of convinced that we should be doing this. Um, one of the things that you often don't see in the science community is an awareness that they also start with assumptions. And I think your book does a nice job of, of bringing that to the fore that, you know, if we're thinking about scientific exploration, if we're thinking about exploration of space, there's a set of assumptions that are floating around there and we need to be cognizant of them. They need to be out in front rather than, you know, kind of lurking in the background. And and that was something that I thought was really a a powerful aspect of the book because it runs through the whole thing as you work through your argument. Yeah. And uh, give me a second to think about what I want to say there. Um, yeah. Part of that is just, that's the kind of thing philosophers like to do, right? We, we like to mm-hmm. pick apart arguments. We like to identify assumptions and, and spend a really long time uh, trying to figure out why what appear to be uncontroversial claims are fundamentally mistaken. Um, you know, it, it's sort of our hobby in a certain way, but um, to, to me, it, it's an expression of love um, mm-hmm. because I think, you know, I, I've always been passionate about space exploration. I would say that I love space exploration. Mm-hmm. And when you love something, you're not, it, it's not an expression of love to turn it into something else. It, it's not an expression of love to be destructive. Um, it's an expression of love to seek understanding. Uh, and to care for the things that you love. And so if I truly love space exploration and I care for it, I can't be lazy with my reasoning about it. I can't just accept any old reason for wanting to engage in activities in, in space. Um, I need to have good reasons. Um, I need to test my ideas. I need to attempt to prove my assumptions, even if they seem incredibly obvious or uncontroversial to me. Um, again, this is sort of coming back to Alistair McIntyre, uh, ideas I was talking about. And, and this is basically, if we love something, we need to sort of acquire self-knowledge, this understanding of context. Um, and 
I start to wonder then, uh, maybe my starting point was different than, than other folks' starting points. And, and this is why I think another reason why it's important to reflect is, is so people can think back about what is it that got them into space in the first place? What drew them to space exploration? And in some cases, it's going to be, you know, dreams of mining asteroids. That that can be somebody's starting point, right? But I don't think it's everyone's starting point. I don't think the capitalism is the starting point for most everyone. I think it's things like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 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 novels and and, and TV shows and movies, and. I almost want people to be kids again about space. Can you forget um, what you've read from all of the proselytizers and all of the people who are attempting to make money off of space exploration? And can you remember why it is you started caring about it in the first place? Because you shouldn't have to sign up for somebody else's vision um, to have a vision for space exploration. And um, I actually have a... um, trying to, you know, um, Sorry, I was just uh, thinking about how to transition to, to a, a, a next book uh, <laughs> that's under contract. Well, let's, um, come back. let's come back to that yeah. because I think um, one of the things that I would say is that I don't think it's necessarily bad. Uh, you know, I think back to my own attraction to space and, you know, I grew up in the sixties and, and honestly, the answer to the question for me is because it's cool, you know, it's just mm-hmm. really cool and interesting to think about humans moving into an environment that is utterly alien to them. They can't live in the environment without having to construct an environment to be in when they're in space. And they, you know, by doing this, we go to places that are entirely unlike uh, the place where, you know, we emerged. And so uh, I don't know if that's an intrinsic value. Maybe, you know, it's kind of interesting because I suppose in a way I construct that as a sort of intrinsic value to doing space exploration. But um, I think the coolness factor matters. I don't think that that's a, an, an unmeaningful thing for people. And uh, and I think people in many different cultures find it that way. Not in all of them, but um, mm-hmm. certainly in other cultures, that's not an unusual thing. Um, and, you know, well, it's mm-hmm. it's important to try to enjoy life. And part of enjoying yeah. life is doing cool things. Mm-hmm. It's with space, the issue is it's so expensive. And so just being cool is not enough on its own, unless it, you know, is sort of provably the case that enough people think it's cool, uh, that it's not um, taking away from important things, the resources we, we, we put into space exploration. And so, you know, yeah, space is cool. And I think that's not a terrible argument for space in context where being cool is enough and we have the resources to, to do cool things uh, and, and feed people at the same time sort of thing. Um, but you, know, you go beyond the, the coolness factor because you, you yeah. make a claim that, that we actually have a moral obligation to extend human life, if I understand this correctly. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that because that, there's an area where I'm, I'm unconvinced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want you to convince me. Um, but you know, I, kind of look at humans and I, I think, well, we have made an utter mess of our planet. And, you know, I have at times thought, um, that rather than being something that should be extended, we look an awful lot like a disease that's infected our planet and, and really ruined it. And so, you know, maybe we're just a threat to other forms of life and other planets that we, um, 
uh, spread to just like a virus. And, you know, so why is human life special? Why do we have a moral obligation to extend human life? So I'll, I'll start with the hedge again, which is that um, the, the main audience I, I might have been writing for at that part of the book was, was the audience that already agrees that, that humans are intrinsically valuable. Um, and um, looking at what that means for certain objections that might have been raised uh, to space settlement. And, and so uh, in some sense, uh, I was writing for people that already believe that humans are intr- intrinsically valuable. And I don't mm-hmm. try to much develop uh, a justification for thinking in the first place that they are beyond the kind of approach I would have given to scientific knowledge and, and understanding, which is that if you look at both human ethical thought as well as human behavior more broadly, you're going to f- you know, construct a hypothesis about, hey, you know, you should treat humans as ends and never as means sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these foundational things we say about why it's important to respect people. Um, I, I think you can get that out of some kind of inference to the best explanation style argument just by examining behavior, even cross-culturally. So that's going to be where I try to make the argument. Um, I know others uh, like Kelly Smith, for instance, is more tempted by evolutionary approaches to ethics because and and the temptation there comes from there's something empirical about it. Right. Mm -hmm. That if it's about survival and and a drive to continue to exist and reproduce, we can measure that. But I mean, while we can measure whether there are such drives, we can't exactly measure scientifically whether those drives are ethical drives are, are ones that we ought to engage in. I think you've got to have additional argumentation there. So I don't think a, a natural, I'm sorry, a, an evolutionary approach uh, gets you to ethics ultimately. But that that's a deep discussion within in philosophy and ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what, what I'll say, so I, I, I do believe that humans are, if anything's intrinsically valuable, humans are. I, I, I do believe that. Um, but... Do I mean by that that humans are superior beings compared to other Earth life? No. Um, do I mean by that 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 we're so valuable that that the only thing we need to do is expand? Not at all. Um, I think we are among the intrinsically valuable entities in the universe, uh, and that if by expanding into space we do not do any harm, um, that's very different than if... Uh, we're causing harm to other life forms. And so if this is a concern about, you know, are humans being arrogant uh, and thinking they're above other life on Earth? Well, I'm not sure why that would be an objection to space settlement. Maybe it's an argument to, to make sure we, we take a lot of Earth life with us, um, that, that we don't deny this opportunity to, to other life forms, although, you know, we're going to have questions there about, <laughs> is that what those other life forms would want? Um, mm-hmm. Are we being arrogant in our presumptions about what's good or bad for other life? Um, so, so really, I don't think I should be seen as saying anything more than that humans count for something. And I'm not trying mm-hmm. to be too specific about how much they count for. Um, but when we're talking about space settlement and we're talking about activities that we could possibly regard as not directly related to earth and terrestrial life, then, you know, I, I don't know what's a problem with anthropocentrism, uh, as a method when there are no, you know, non anthropocentric, uh, moral patients involved. Uh, mm-hmm. so, um, and I, I would even, um, relate this to what I might say about, um, you know, different cultural beliefs about space settlement, which is, 
it's one thing if there's a lot of cultural variety where some of the cultures say, let's do it, and the others just don't care. Um, it's different if there's a lot of cultural variety and some of them say they really want to do it. Some say they don't care at all. And others say, if you do it, it would hurt us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's the kind of model I would want to use. I, I would ask, you know, regardless of whether it's true or false that humans are intrinsically valuable. I mean, is there harm that's being done? Um, and the most likely sources of harm seem to me to be, you know, you're going to need earth resources to do this in the first place. Uh, and so for, you know, the stuff you're taking from Earth, is that going to, to to cause the kind of harm to ecosystems, to other species and things like this? So so I am 100% on board with the idea that we need to get over ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not important. And that doesn't mean we're not worth, you know, keeping around. So that brings me to, um, I, I assume you're familiar with Daniel Dudney's book, Dark Skies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he takes a very different perspective from yours, and, and, and probably it's unfair of me to let you um, respond without him here. But um, Well, I think he's got I, pretty I'm, good arguments, so I don't know if I'm going to have great okay. rebuttals. So. Well, well, that's, uh, that's my, you know, my question is what you think about his argument, because he takes a, a perspective that, that there is damage to be done, and the damage mm-hmm. is to humanity itself, that if we expand into space, he, he sets aside scientific investigation of space and, and, you know, satellites and things for communications. But he's deeply concerned that if, if, you know, we kind of make this rush to expansion into space, um, we're opening ourselves up to um, existential threat because, you know, the part of what he talks about is the, the forces involved uh, with, you know, the, with the kinds of forces that we can, you know, wield when we're in space become enormous. You know, you can, you can, move that asteroid to orbit the moon so that we can mine it. You can also, if you can do that, you can aim it at a city and Mm -hmm. eradicate, you know, half a continent conceivably. And so I think in many respects, he thinks we're simply not ready for this at this point. And I'm curious what you think about his argument. Um, Yeah. I remember the first thing uh, it reminded me of was I, I was giving a talk about ethics and planetary protection at this interstellar uh, conference, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago. And, and I was speaking alongside or not alongside, but, you know, either just before or just after, I can't remember an Air Force general um, who was sort of talking about, you know, space security. And I think he even talked about the, the need to protect American interests against ISIS in space. And I became very curious as to, you know, why exactly I would need to worry about ISIS in space. Um, and maybe he just meant, you know, well, there's satellite, you know, imagery that's used in defensive, you know, terrestrial conflicts. Um, but that's not what it sounded like he was saying. And, um, yeah, this whole space security thing, I've not delved into it much. And so I'm not going to have any super well-developed responses. I'd rather speak truth to space power than research space power. But, Mm um, so if I understand his arguments correctly, it's probably this, that, um, if we devise the capability to settle space, we devise the capability to basically destroy terrestrial life and humans have not shown they're all that trustworthy. So this is an incredibly uh, risky gamble. Um, That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's right, but I don't know that it's wrong either. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of a fence sitter there, but I'm certainly willing to believe he's pointing to the truth. Um, I I don't Mm -hmm. think, uh, that's something that should be dismissed out of hand. I think we do uh, collectively need to really take a serious look at at, at the arguments he makes there and, and the arguments that others have made in, in a 
on a similar kind of geopolitical source of concern way, because, you know, we're not escaping politics, we're not escaping geopolitics. And right. so we're not ex- escaping the idea that there are going to be cultures and societies that are going to be interacting with one another. Um, and like, sorry, um, there, there was a bubble uh, that just popped. <laughs> um, well, it's about, um, is there really no, no room for hope in that regard? Mm. And what what would count as evidence of hope or evidence enough of hope? And would that require some kind of, you know, broad institutional economic change? Because I think, you know, a lot a lot of folks like, like you and I see a potential solution to this kind of problem as moving away from, you know, free market capitalist systems. Because when mm-hmm. you, you force people to be competitive, now others are more like enemies than collaborators. Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, it, it's 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 at least conceptually understandable why you know a person reared in that environment is going to be more hostile by nature, or, or by default rather. It's not nature; it's 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 by habit. Yeah, it's um, yeah. And so, but even if we get that shift, does it actually you know come with the cultural uh, changes that, that that we would like to see out of it? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I am so so when Kelly Smith says, you know, maybe in the end, capitalism is the best thing we can get to work. Um, I really hope that's not the case. But if it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm not really quite sure what to say anymore. Um, you know, I'm not I, I don't know how to balance the the, the ledgers in that situation. Um, a, yeah. a lot of, I'd have to revisit a lot of my assumptions is all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, Dudney is very much a force to be reckoned with and I'm just not sure mm-hmm. how to reckon with him as yet. I think, I think this actually underscores the, you know, uh, several things that we face at the moment. I, I, I like the way that you present the idea of, you know, the, the competitive element in capitalism has a way of, you, you might say, sort of enemizing other people in other things. And, and that's, that's a problem. Because uh, comp- when competition goes to that level, then it's very hard for us to manage how to control those sorts of forces that Dudney's talking about. And so, you know, it seems like we need a different way of thinking about economics and politics and, and the way that we interact with each other to be able to get to that point where we might be able to expand in such a way that we wouldn't have these kinds of existential risks, or at least they'd be minimized, um, that Dudney talks about. I think what this raises is how important a conversation this is to be having right now. Your book, Dudney's book, um, Kelly Smith's work, there, there are a variety of things out there now that are really trying to get a grasp of this as we're in the middle of genuinely beginning to expand into space. And I think what, what we see with works like yours is that, that you know, trying to get there before the damage is done mm-hmm. rather than, you know, looking back on it and say, oh, wow, we just, you know, we totally destroyed the solar system. That's too bad. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's a pretty bad spot to be in. And, and I, I think that's, Oh, we, you know, we just some, moved to another one, right? That, that's the solution it, it, to all the problems, right? Just, well, and that's, the, that's exactly the problem. That's when people get mm-hmm. into these arguments about, Oh, we need a backup for earth, you know? Well, yeah, maybe we do, but that isn't the solution to the problems that we've created on earth. 
that's a symptom of the problems that we've created. Um, and, you know, the fear that I have, for example, with expansion to Mars or, or wherever is that we'll just replicate the same sort of thing and wind up ruining the next place we go to. And eventually we're going to run out of places that that's, you know, I mean, unless we figure out how to travel faster than the speed of light, um, we don't really have that many places to move to. And so this is a very important conversation to be having right now. Well, and, and to me, I mean, I think there's stuff there that even, you know, pragmatist uh, free market capitalist types should find concerning in a way that they, if certain information is presented in ways that they're they're able to, to see for what it is, they might say, okay, yeah, we're maybe going too quick because, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, as I discuss in the fifth chapter about space resources, uh, I mean, they're vast in principle. Um, you know, when you start looking at all the zeros and how many quadrillions mm-hmm. of people could, you know, in principle live off of the resources of the solar system, um, you know, things are just staggering, you know, truly astronomical, right? Yeah. Um, but it's not as though, you know, that store is just down the road. Um, right. You know, resources are, are highly distributed at all sorts of different energy levels, Um Energy levels, as in, um, you know, how much fuel it would take uh, and how long your missions would take to, to, to get to asteroids or, or other moons and planets and so forth. Um, and so when you start, you know, looking a little more realistically about how space mining would begin as an industry and how much raw material it would provide access to and on what sort of time scales, um, your your space ambitions really start to to narrow down. Um, you're never going to have everything at the store. It's just what you can fit into your little, you know, mini shopping cart every, every year or month that you're able to go up there. Uh, so like mining from C type, uh, near earth asteroids for water. Um, there was a paper that came out two years ago that estimated that you're expecting maybe 70 tons a month, and there are going to be maybe five asteroids per month that are going to have the kind of orbits. And in terms of how you plan your missions to these, because you've got to do it months and months, if not years in advance and all that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's when you, when you, if you were to just go into your kitchen or your bathroom and turn on the faucet, you're already getting water at like three or four times the rate that we're talking about. So... Um, where is this bounty that, that people keep talking about? Well, it, it's not just all there in one place. And I, I think a big barrier to getting people to think more critically and deeply uh, about you know commercial spaceflight objectives is getting them disabused from these, I don't want to say falsehoods, but you know misleading um, pitches about what space offers. People's pitch space is this magic button to solve problems. And that's not how it works. We don't solve problems we don't set out to solve. Um, yeah. you know, so we're not going to make the world a better place with space exploration just by letting the capitalists go and do whatever the hell they want up there. Um, right. I mean, there's a chance it works, but you're, you're asking for a lot of faith. And I don't want to be dogmatic about space. I don't want space exploration to be something that requires a kind of religious-like devotion to unquestionable assumptions. Um, because I'm not trying to disparage religion in, in saying this, um, because religions are are valuable and they give a lot of meaning to people's lives. But spaceflight should not be a religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I'm interested in trying to determine what could space advocacy look like um, that doesn't require 
faith-based commitments, or at least doesn't require faith-based commitments outside of the, the kinds of things that I don't know, um, people might say science requires faith because you're putting faith in yeah. some kind of process, but you know, so, um, uh, I'm aware of that, that way of trying to undermine the, the thing I'm pitching right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the book does a really excellent job of this and, and I strongly recommend readers to take a look at it there. It's, it's, uh, nicely written. There are some very dense philosophical portions and then some portions that are, uh, a little bit more accessible, but it's, it's a really, really good book. And so, um, I'd like to ask what what's up next? What are you um, you know what are you working on? You, you mentioned that you have another book under contract, so I'd be interested if you could talk a bit about your plans for what you're going to be writing next. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, for my own sake, uh, next up is thinking about um, sort of idealism versus real politics, so pragmatism versus uh, idealistic approaches to to thinking about ethics and and governance for space settlement. Um, if I were to start writing the book right now, it would be called Survival is Not Enough, the, the Ethics of Creating New Societies on Space, but that'll be uh, quite a ways off. But but the the other thing, uh, I'm editing a book uh, right now. It's with Oxford University Press, uh, and my co-editors are Erica Nesfold and Linda Billings. And the book mm-hmm. uh, is tentatively titled Reclaiming Space, Progressive and Multicultural Visions of Space Exploration. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, we've got a whole bunch of authors from... Uh, sort of, you know, lots of different backgrounds, both uh, academics, non-academics, um, you know, from uh, the Western Hemisphere and and other hemispheres, um, and um, uh, that that might be out a year from now, uh, sometime 2022. Uh, but that is uh, coming up next, and 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 it's about you know seeking perspective. I was talking about this a little mm-hmm. earlier. Um, you know, we need to learn from other folks. It's not enough just to talk about space according to what we thought was important about it. We need to seek perspective. Uh, and there's not a lot of perspective out there that's easy to find that's not the the typical capitalist, libertarian, American um, yep. view of space. And, and, and so the reason why I'm so excited about this is I, I want this to be a a way for other people to to find perspective, even you know younger folks who might find this in a musty bookstore in, in twenty or thirty years. So, yeah, that that sounds great, and and I it kind of you know it brings back a point that you you made at the beginning of our conversation that that you know this is something that truly affects everybody. Um, the entire population of our planet, in one way or another, will have an influence from what we do and how we deal with going into you know, the space and expansion into space. It's not just an American endeavor. And that means it's not just an endeavor of, you know, American style, as you say, libertarian capitalism. It's, it's, it's much more complicated and we need to get those voices in there. So it sounds like a, a great book. I'm looking forward to that. As am I. <laughs> well, Dr. Schwartz, thank you very much for taking the time to join me on the science technology and society channel of the new books network. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you about what is, I think, a, Great book and, and a really fascinating take on an important um, topic related to science and space exploration and, and really working through some of these moral questions that are, are going to continue to be things that are going to be on our mind. And so I just want to thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun chatting with you, John, and I wish you the best. Great. And with that, I will bring this episode of the SDS podcast to an end by saying it's dead, Jim.